I write about bad times a lot of times and it seems to resonate with people that are going through those. So uh, any way we can help, if we're here for it. I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by in the corner back by the Woodpile podcast. These songs from a 1980s Roller Rink Dumpster edition. These are some podcasts where we highlight some of the music from our favorite decade that may have been overlooked or hovered just below the radar. My guest today was such a fan of the bands that we're going to cover today. He started a magazine in the latter part of the 1980s to get the word out. John J. Thompson and True Tunes News, which at its peak boasted a circulation of 50,000 readers, focused on often neglected bands that had a spiritual or faith-based worldview. There's a ton of artists that we wanted to highlight today, but we had to narrow it down to four for the time being, which includes The Call, Tony O'Kay, Ideola, and this first one, The 77s. So the 77s actually started off uh, called the Scratch Band, and they were the house band of a, a very progressive church out in Sacramento called Warehouse Ministries. So Warehouse, the Neelys were the pastors, and they ran a, a radio, syndicated radio show called Rock and Religion that would talk about mainstream music and the cooler Christian stuff. I have some of their shows on vinyl that I've collected over the years. It's the Scratch Band was basically the house band for the church. And Mike Rowe had grown up playing, you know, with a lot of different people in the 70s and was, uh, an ex and is an exceptional guitar player. The Scratch Band ended up becoming the 77s. The first two records were put out by the church's label, which was called Exit Records. Um, actually, so was the third record, but the first two, Exit did a partnership with A&M to distribute it into the mainstream and word music distributed into the Christian stores. Their vision was never for it to be a Christian label. It was always to be an outreach. They wanted to be a real label with real music out in the real marketplace. And the 77s were designed to be their shot at, you know, major rock glory. And they were not happy with how the A&M thing, A&M really didn't do anything to launch the band in the mainstream. Word did get some traction because there was these small Christian stations that started playing it and there was, you know, Christian bookstores like where I went and bought it. For the third album, which was the self-titled album, uh, they had changed their mainstream partnership to Island. So it was still Exit Records in partnership with Island, but they didn't have a Christian distributor now, so they decided to forego that altogether. And the label had the 77s, it had Charlie Peacock, and it had Vector. Um, there was a metal band called First Strike that Mike Rowe produced. There was also a guy named Thomas Goodliness who had a jazz prog kind of thing called Panacea that actually came out first. And there was this guy named Steve Scott who is fantastic. Um, he's a poet. He's still out there writing and teaching and doing all of his uh, really cool spoken word stuff. But back then he was kind of like uh, Peter Gabriel, very artsy out there. And he had actually been working with Larry Norman at one point, but Larry never put the record out and it, there's all kinds of stories there. Yeah. So the 77s were Steve Scott's band and Steve Griffith from Vector helped produce the 77 stuff. And you know, the drummers kind of changed groups and Jimmy Abeg played for Vector, but he also played with Charlie Peacock and 
you know so there it was all a very group of incestuous friends. Kind yeah of. You know, in the best possible way it was yeah. a it was a laboratory of really really talented very forward-thinking people who had a faith perspective but were not wanting to just sing to the choir mm -hmm. they wanted to do music that could compete with the big leagues and mm -hmm. they did every record that that label put out i felt like was very very competitive on that way if i recall correctly on that self-titled record the lust of flesh mm -hmm. the lust of the flesh the eyes and the pride of life yeah that was like the song that i remember first hearing and and, and you know chris hillman from the birds played on that one And, you know, the story is that the self-titled record was released the same day as Joshua Tree, on the same label as Joshua wow. Tree. Wow. So, which was the biggest, from what I recall, the biggest selling record in history um, in terms of, in that amount of time. Like, mm -hmm. in the first week or whatever it was, it sold more units than any other record had in that amount of time. So, essentially, Island Records, you know, whatever they thought they were going to do the week after Joshua Tree came out, got scrapped unless it was Joshua Tree. So sure. they, they became the U2 label and everything else was sidelined. So amongst 77's fans, you know, it's kind of, most of us love Joshua Tree as well. So it's hard to hate U2. It would be mm. so much easier if it was Def Leppard or Bon Jovi <laughs> that did that. But, yeah. you know, I mean, how can you argue with yeah. Joshua Tree? But it is interesting to think, what if it had come out, you know, a week earlier? Yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Because it got really good press. Whatever press it did get was excellent, mm -hmm. but there was just no oxygen left in the room after Joshua Tree came out. Think about how that record came out, and Joshua Tree's credited as the record that kind of killed the hair metal era and ushered in the alternative era, you know? And you just think how the 77s were right there in the, in the exact mm -hmm. slipstream of that stuff. And without sounding anything like you two, you know, they weren't like all the Christian bands that came out later and did the dotted eighth note delay pedal U2 mm -hmm. cloning thing. They were totally unique. So who knows? And I honestly wonder sometimes if God doesn't just keep certain things under wraps because success has destroyed so many people. So uh, yeah. I'm just spiritual enough to think that there's some sovereignty involved. Right. But it was a hugely deflating experience and... Um, it kind of ended, although they, the Sticks and Stones record that came out later was kind of demos that they had been working on for whatever the follow-up record was going to be that didn't end up happening with mm -hmm. Island. It um, came out in 90, right? It came out a few years later. They put that record, uh, Sticks and Stones, out themselves. Broken was a tiny label that frankly had like two or three different iterations. And I was running True Tunes at that point. So I remember having to go um, to get the Island record. I had to buy it from other record stores and then just resell it at no profit. <laughs> like, But I just believed in it that oh, yeah. much. So there was a sound warehouse in Lombard, Illinois that I kept buying 10 copies at a time. Huh. And somebody once asked, you know, what are you doing with all these records? Because I had a special order them, and I said, I'm selling them at my store in Wheaton. And, uh, but no other Christian bookstores sold 77 stuff mm -hmm. at that point. So they put it out. Um, there was like an import version and a domestic version, and none of those things lasted very long. Those labels all struggled to mm -hmm. even exist. So 
I don't remember exactly which. I know that essentially it was the band putting it out independently, but they'd license it to different labels. Mm -hmm. um, then Mike did this Seven and Seven Is kind of solo project, which was basically drum machine tracks, which is amazing how good a song like You 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 shouldn't work that good, but because it's just drum machine demos, but it still works. Then they landed with Murr Records, uh, and they did, well, I guess I remember Brainstormer Murr came first, but they were with Word Proper, and they did the next record, it was supposed to be called Pray Naked, and mm -hmm. they, the label changed it to the 77s, which was unfortunate, because that's what the Island record was also right. called. Um, and then they did the Drowning with Light and Sun. This is the way love is. This is the way So you became friends, I guess, with Micro over time. It's funny. I, I went that night of the 77's Res Band show, somewhere in my collection, and I cannot find it. I have a 8 by 10 glossy signed by all of the band members, and when I was getting them all to sign it, Mike just looked so cool. I mean, his hair was just huge and all in his face. And I was in awe, and yeah. I had a total Chris Farley SNL moment of like, Oh, you're cool, you're yeah. awesome. And I went up and I said... Oh, I'm trying to think of what can I say? And I said, is Mike Rowe your real name? And he looks at me, oh, he's got these sunglasses on, and he kind of looks at me, he's like, what? And I said, is that your real name, or is it like micro, like micronauts or uh. microwave? And he just stares at me, no smile, no, he just stares at me, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I just crumbled, I felt like just a, a little ant. And uh, he said, that is my name. Uh -huh. That is my given name. That was how I first met him. I was totally intimidated. And then saw them at Cornerstone a number of times. And I launched True Tunes at Cornerstone 89. And so I think I had already met him a couple of times by then. But we actually had a conversation at the hotel, which was the first time that I felt like he actually remembered who I was. And... and Honestly, what I did with True Tunes, everything that I did with that was about, was kind of templated off the world should know about the 77s. Huh. And now other stuff too. Well, yeah. But that was the band I'm like, there is no reason, there's no reason this band isn't more famous. And my friends would like this band if they got a chance to hear mm -hmm. them. So I'm going to build a bridge between this band and my friends. And then all of a sudden, there's Daniel Amos, who existed before the 77s, but I hadn't really been aware of him yet. There was, you know, like I said, Resband and all these other groups. And I started to find there's a whole lot of people like me that were not really interested in religious music or Southern gospel music mm -hmm. or whatever, but would be interested in this if we talked about it in the right way. Right. And there were a couple of other magazines that dealt with it, but not the way I, I really wanted to. Mm -hmm. So... So the 77s and Mike Knott and the choir and Adam again and all those groups were the reason I did what I did. Right. And so, you know, later we became friends. I remember giving Mike, um, he played at True Tunes once. My band opened for the 77s in 1991. That was huge. It was a big crowd at Congrats. a big school. Oh, it was, it was epic. I have actually 16 millimeter film of it that mm -hmm. I just need to find somebody that can transfer it. But it was a, a super cool moment for us. And... 
after the show we did a party at True Tunes like at midnight and a band came and signed stuff and it was it was really fun but Mike I was giving him a ride somewhere in, in my old Volvo wagon and my license plate which I have in the back there is it says Tunes 77 he looked at my license plate and he looked at me and I said well my birthday is July 7th and he's like no it's not I said yes it is <laughs> my birthday is actually 7770 mm -hmm. and I said so you know um, that's the only reason I like your dumb band. And he, he's like, he goes, you put my my band name on your license plate. I think you owe me royalties for that. Uh. So. Every day, another is Mike Rowe and Dave Leonard did a 77s tour, and they played in my neighbor's basement a few years ago. Oh. Um, and Mike did a show up in the living room upstairs nine years ago with Phil Madeira and Matt Slocum from Sixpence. Jimmy Abeg was there. It was, you know, the whole gang. The 77s are definitely still a thing, and so is Mike Rowe as a solo artist, and so is Kerosene Halo, mm -hmm. which is the thing he does with Derry from the choir. Can't you hear me, guys? An artist just mysteriously known as Ideola. Man, I love that album. And did you know Olivia Newton John covered one of those Ideola songs? Yeah, is it How to Big and Strong? Yeah. yeah. So I had encountered Mark Hurd early on when I, back in that beginning. And to people not knowing, Mark Hurd is basically Ideola. So Mark Hurd had already developed a reputation as this singer-songwriter and rock artist who was always like a stone in the shoe of CCM people because his music was way too honest, way too real. And when he did it acoustically, it was beautiful, folky James Taylor stuff. Um, with with a hint of Dylan, and then he could plug in and rock out. His his uh, Stop the Dominoes record is a fantastic new wavy Elvis Costello kind of record. He had done all these records for a really iffy label called Home Sweet Home. There was a lot of funk going on, and it was not cool. And he had never really cut through. Well, sometime in the mid late '80s. T-Bone Burnett, who was a producer, everybody kind of knows him now, but at the time he had been he had been in Bob Dylan's band in the 70s and then he um, did his own solo records, which were fantastic. And T-Bone was a Christian, but wasn't really interested in doing Christian music per se, but had kind of a vision along with a guy named Tom Willett, who's actually still uh, in the community here in Nashville, and some other folks, and they started a, a label within Word Records, which Word was a Christian label, but they had mainstream distribution. So kind of like what Exit Records was trying to do with the 77s, they created this label called What Records, what with a question mark, and it was supposed to be mainstream artists from a Christian perspective. So it was very much like what Exit was doing, although it wasn't from a church. And T-Bone was involved, and, and 
the first records were like Dave Perkins' first records, The Innocence, and Antonio K. I was definitely the one of the flagship artists for what records. Well, all of those guys were friends with Mark Hurd. Mark was already in, moving into producing a lot of that kind of music and writing songs for that stuff. So from what I understand, Mark wanted to just try something totally different. And so by calling it Ideola, and the album cover was a, this weird geometric pattern, and on the back there's this strange picture that you might not even recognize that it was Mark's hair sticking up, and it's very new way of looking. And the record was a lot more produced, a lot more synths and drum machines and stuff. songs really weren't that different than what he did on Stop the Dominoes. Like, it could be that Peter Gabriel was more of his bullseye than Elvis Costello, but, I mean, it was still highly literate, super engaging, relentlessly hooky. And so it was one of those moments where a lot of us, when we heard that record, we thought, well, this is going to be the thing. Because, you know, Sledgehammer was a huge hit on MTV, and we're thinking, you know, this is it. You know, this and Steve Taylor was finally kind of hitting that stride and there were some other artists we thought Ideal was going to make it. It didn't work in either Christian music or right. <laughs> secular music. It kind of was like Chagall Guevara with Steve Taylor. You know, that was the same thing Steve Taylor did. In fact, with, including Dave Perkins, who I just mentioned. So there were several attempts from faith-based artists who didn't want to be pigeonholed. Because a lot of them didn't know at the beginning that that's what they were signing up for. They just wanted to make records. Mm -hmm. They didn't realize, oh, we're going to be short bust for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. And we're going to only sing for youth groups and at Christian colleges. And so... One way around that was to kind of create an alternate identity. So that's what Ideola was. That's what Chicago Guevara was. There was Daniel Amos did it with the swirling eddies. <laughs> it was like yeah. there were several of these things that happened, and it was fun for the fans, but it didn't seem to really expand. I don't know how Olivia Newton John heard that song, but um, you know, there's always it's always about a relationship. Somebody knows somebody slips in the tape, right. and um, the song's undeniable. Go Ask the Dead Man was one of my favorite ones. Is it any wonder? Mm -hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, which so, was a video for. So good. Yeah. There was possibly going to be a second Ideola record, and somewhere along the way, I've collected the demos of the songs that were going to be on that record. And it was very consistent and it would have been great. That never came to be. That record was very short-lived and now it's really hard to find. But Mark then transitioned right into what were his three best albums of his whole life. And and it was mandolin. It wasn't even just acoustic. It was like he didn't try to make it smooth or cool at all. He just went straight to the heart of who he was. And it was this really mountainy mandolin based uh almost sometimes really bright almost brittle sounding but just such good song Prisoners of the small world and
So when you listen to Second Hand or Satellite Skies, Driveline's Dance, you still hear the same DNA that you heard in the Iola songs, just like you can hear that same DNA back in Ashes and Light, mm -hmm. whatever. So. When I met Mark, I was so intimidated. Even this was even like years after I'd started True Tunes, and I was already friends with some of these artists. So it was, I wasn't really starstruck by most of them. But I had Mark on such a pedestal um, that when I finally met him, he was so nice and so sweet. But I was just completely uh, <laughs> a nerd. Right. And uh, we were backstage. He played with the choir at uh, Judson College in Elgin, and he said to me, he said, "You know, I've heard about what you're doing with some of the shows, and we were getting ready to start this." concert venue at True Tunes and I'd helped put on some shows in the Wheaton area. He said, I'd love to come play sometime. So we actually had plans to, we had a show booked um, and it was going to be a True Tunes show, but it wasn't in our own venue yet because we didn't have that, but it was going to be at a local, there was this old historic kind of church that was rented out for different things we were going to do it there. And he had to cancel that show, but he said, we're going to, let's do it in August. And so we punted it to August and then at Cornerstone, I saw him and we were catching up a little bit and looking forward to that and we were going to announce the show. In fact, I think I announced it at Cornerstone that we were going to do a Mark Hurd show. And that night, if I remember correctly, Mark was playing at the same time as Adam again and as, or maybe the Violet Burning. There was like three or four bands, great bands, playing all at the same time. And my wife locked the keys in our car. Oh, no. And so... We had to wait for Tim, the, who I also called Spike, who was in a punk band from Japusa called Crash Dog, to come break into my car so I could get my keys out. And so we're in the, it's the middle of the night, it's like midnight, and Mark's playing on the gallery stage, which I think I might have introduced that show because that was True Tune sponsored that stage. And I was trying to get over to see The Violet Burning and I was trying to get over to see somebody else. We could hear all of the different bands playing because my car was like equidistant from all of them. And I walked over and I watched Mark and, and Pam minor was playing with him and i watched several of those songs then i went back over to the car and tim wasn't there and i walked over and i watched some violet burning songs and that was fantastic and then i went back to the car then i went back to the mark show and i saw another couple of songs and i thought well you know he's gonna play in a few weeks in in aurora wheaton so maybe i'll go watch the violets because i'll see mark in just a few weeks well that was the night that he had his heart attack and so i see the ambulance coming and it went right by where we were waiting to get my car unlocked and someone said oh mark mark isn't feeling good and you know so we were we were devastated um and then it was so cruel too because it was he had a heart attack oh but he's gonna be okay and they got him to the hospital and then a few weeks later they released him and we all heard at true tunes that somebody called mark got out of the hospital everything's great he's uh gonna head home and then in the ho hotel across the street from the hospital has another heart attack and that put him into a coma, and then a month later he died. So we never did get to do the show. So that's always... And he was 40 years old. Right? Yeah, something like that, 40, yeah. 41, something like Just way too young. Um, I have been really thrilled to see how his songs have survived. We've covered his songs for years. Pierce Pettis continues to cover his songs. There yeah, every are, album, the first, yeah, very first song is a Mark Hurd yeah, song. It's, yeah. It's really cool, and there's a group on Facebook that's kind of coalescing, and some of them have been knocking on some of our virtual doors saying, hey, let's 
let's do something. Let's mm -hmm. you know do a new tribute record or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it, the flame has never gone out on Mark's stuff at all, and that's very rewarding to see. This next artist, though having worked with everyone from Burke Backrack, Brian Wilson, Al Green, the Pointer Sisters, T-Bone Burnett, Vanessa Williams, the Sex Pistols, Steve Jones, and even Buddy Holly's band, the Crickets, the 80s generation heard his songs featured in such soundtracks as Summer School, Real Genius, and Batman Forever. The feller I'm talking about is Tony O'Kay. So Tony O'Kay, I, I mean, I first heard about him when his first Christian record came out, Romeo Unchained. He had several mainstream records that came out and all the way back into the late 70s. You know, um, he was respected, just not commercially well known, but he had a record called Life in the Food Chain that had a song called Why Can't I See You in My Mirror about realizing that he's dating a vampire. I got this real uneasy feeling in my stomach most of the time. And usually it gets worse when you're around. One called Hatred. Yes. I'm full of H-A-T-R-E-D, you really P-I-S-S-E-D yeah, -S -S -E me off. I hope you G-O-T-O-H-E-L-L, you lying insensitive. You know, it's like... H-A-T-R-E-D, I'm bitter and you got me I was like, man, this guy's angry. But he's also funny. But I didn't discover any of that stuff until after Romeo and Chain. Then I went back and it was What Records. It was distributed in the mainstream by A&M and it, by Word. Uh, in the Christian market and I found it in the Christian market because we did not get that kind of music very often. Mm -hmm. It was definitely real LA quality rock and roll with a real sarcastic, very clever Elvis Costello, but even funnier mm -hmm. uh, lyrical approach. The whole lyrical theme of that record was comparing and contrasting what America and what the Western world thought love was to what, you know, love really was. every song on it. I know that he didn't like um, I Handle Snakes because it didn't fit the theme, but I love that song. I'm a fearless man. So that record came out, we sold a ton of it. That was actually when I was, True Tunes was not even a separate business yet. I was the music buyer of a Christian bookstore. We sold an inordinate amount of that record because I was such a fan. Then the Notes from the Lost Civilization record came out, which was even better. As soon as I discovered who Tony O.K. was and I read a couple of articles about him, there was this big used record mart thing that happened once a year in Chicago. It was called like the Dick Clark used music it was huge it was like circus tents full of records and all the money went to some charity and i went there every year and stocked up on obscure christians faith-based mm -hmm. stuff like lone justice and t1 burnett and the call and simple minds and midnight oil stuff that a lot of people in the general market were not that interested in true mm -hmm. tunes people were and we couldn't find it so vinyl and cd singles and all that stuff and i found all of tony okay's 
early records, and I found them in some quantity. I don't remember how much, but my car was had every space full, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just his stuff. But so I ended up selling Tony O'Kay's early stuff at True Tunes when it was out of print, and it had been out of print for years because mm -hmm. I happened to stumble across boxes mm -hmm. of it. So La Bamba, America. Life in the Food Chain. Then he did the notes from the Lost Civilization, which was fantastic. My favorite story about that was that he's playing at Cornerstone Festival on the main stage, and David Miner was playing bass for him. Now, David had also played with Leon Russell, but David had played with T-Bone Burnett and had helped T-Bone produce the Elvis Costello King of America record. David's playing bass. He was also in a band called Thunderbird Minor, which was fantastic. He had later on, many years later, he helped me produce a kid's record that's still never been released. But So David Miner's playing bass. Tony O'Kay's up there. He's got a band. They're rocking out. And the the first song was um, the Monster Walks Out of the Garden. You know, mm -hmm. and, But he can't, the band's playing, and he can't think of the first lyric. Well, now, the record wasn't out yet, but I had a pre-release copy of it. So I already knew the whole record inside and out. <laughs> And my buddy Rob Anstey also knew it because he was always with me and I forced him to listen to that pre-release over and over and over and over. And so uh, we're in the front, right up by the stage, right under his microphone. And we can tell he can't remember what the lyric is. And he's looking at the band and they're like, we don't know what it is. And so they, they just keep playing the intro and keep playing it. And we're screaming, the monster walks out of the garden. And he can't hear because of the noise. But then he sees us screaming. He comes over and he kind of bends over and we scream out, the monster walks out of the garden. And he's like, oh yeah. And he goes up and he sings and the crowd claps. And the monster walked out of the garden. Brushed the dust off his shores and straightened his tie. He tell that story, there's a cassette that I have somewhere that they sent out to promote the record called Notes on Notes from the Lost, and he actually tells that story. Oh. He didn't know how this crowd knew the song, it wasn't even out yet, and that's, that's my little way of yeah. interjecting myself into the story. But Did you get to know him? Well, as much as, I, I, that would be an overstatement. I got to meet him, okay. um, and this is another funny story. I, um, True Tunes was fairly well established and I got invited to fly out to LA for the release of a, a soul gospel record called Soul Mission that Word did in partnership with Sony. And so I'd never been to California, I'd never seen an ocean, I was like 19 or 20 years old, I was super excited. And um, they said, you know, some of the guys from the choir are going to be at this thing and Tom Willett's going to be there and Brian Duncan is going to be there and so all these different Word people that lived in LA were going to be at this thing. And so we're all sitting together and I already knew the choir guys. And actually, I think I'd seen them the night before play out in L.A. But then there's Tony O.K. sitting right next to me. And he's got his sunglasses on, and he's looking super cool. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're Tony O.K. And I said, you know, I, I found all these old records, and I've been selling them at True Tune. He goes, but they're not Christian records. I said, I don't care. They're good, and they're true. Like, mm -hmm. the whole point is there's a spiritual perspective to them, and there's this, you know, so we, we sell it. And he just couldn't believe it. He was like, I just don't think anybody would care about those records. I said, well... We're not just here to hear people preach. We're here for good music. And right. So anyway, a couple of weeks later, I'm at True Tunes, and uh, I happened to answer the phone, which I usually had other staff members that did that. But this day, I was there by myself, and I picked up the phone, and this weird voice, <clears throat> Um, hello. Um, do you have Tony O.K. records in stock? This obviously affected voice. Uh -huh. I said, yes, we do. He goes, C can you tell me which ones? I said, hold on a second. I put the phone in the counter. I go to the records. I pull out. 
I got Life in the Food Chain, I got America, I got La Bamba, I got blah blah blah, you know, on vinyl. Well, how much are they? And so I tell him, you know, some of them are more than others because of the mm. condition or whatever. And he's like, that seems very expensive for records that are not very good. <laughs> he's like, any chance you would take a discount? And I, I said, is this Tony okay? And he goes, yes it is. <laughs> so he was buying his own records for me. Which was pretty funny, so I packaged up a few and shipped them to him, free of charge. And yeah, his talent as a songwriter is undeniable, and he got cuts on some big records, and pop records, and even some R&B stuff, and I know Charlie Sexton covered his stuff, and you know, so you'd hear Tony O.K. songs pop up here and there, but, um, and he had a couple of big hits, too, that he wrote specifically for other people that weren't songs he had ever recorded but um yeah another one of those things where you just go often the best artists don't get the success that they deserve and you know tiffany does Call was one of those bands that worked with and were friends with such giants as Bono, Peter Gabriel, Jim Kerr of Simple Minds, and the bands Garth Hudson and Robbie Robertson. Their song, I still believe, was performed in the 1980s vampire classic, The Lost Boys. The thing about The Call is that that was one of the first groups that outside of a Christian worldview, their songs made no sense. Mm. Like when I heard it from the very beginning, I knew that this guy was not only a Christian, he was a educated, thoughtful Christian willing to dive into the most complicated aspects of either personal dynamics or cultural mm -hmm. stuff, like external, political, or internal. And I, as a young kid, the, the call, and the way he sang too, his voice is lower, almost like Bowie at times, um, which is very powerful. And so I still believe was the big song that everybody heard, and at least in Chicago, it was all over the radio. And I wanna give out, I wanna give in. This is our crime, this is our sin. But I still believe, I still believe through the pain and through the grief. In Chicago, there was a mainstream FM station called WXRT. And here in Nashville, Lightning 100 was kind of patterned after XRT. And I grew up listening to XRT, and that was like FM rock, album-oriented rock. It would play classic rock stuff, but, but, but XRT played the call. They played early call, Modern Romans, and stuff from the first record and the second record. They also played, I still believe, they played Blood Red. They played Let the Day Begin ad nauseum so they were a big station for the call in chicago i didn't realize that there was still back then regional stations that did that so xrt also played delamitri when other stations i didn't realize that not everybody had ever heard delamitri and now i come to nashville and nobody's heard of delamitri and yeah. they're one of the best bands of that late 80s 100 plays them a little bit but yeah. but then everybody thinks it's i had a friend who swore that it was blues traveler i'm like uh, no that's uh, delamitri. Uh. so the call and what's interesting about that, I didn't realize this until later, was that Michael Bean, who's the lead singer, uh, principal, lyricist, and bass player, 
When I go all the way back to those early Christian records my mom had, one of them was Jamie Owens Collins. And she did a couple of records that I, I actually loved because I had a crush on her because on one of them they put a picture of her when she was a little girl that was my age and she was really cute. So oh, wow. it's like, I like this. Yeah. And it was actually kind of, that record was a little bit more honest. It was, there was a song called The Hard Times Make You Strong that, that I could relate to a little bit more. But on the first Jamie Owens Collins record, Michael Bean is the bass player. Hmm. I think he was just a teenager or really young. And if you look on the art, you can actually see him in there. And it's this total early Jesus music. So he actually had some connection to that, but left it. And The Call was a mainstream band from day one. Everybody in the music industry knew them as the band that should be breaking out any given minute. And if you realize the people that even did cameos, Peter Gabriel and Bono and, you know, Robbie Robertson and these, you know, like, they were very well respected. And there's just, they were one of the bands that if I had a friend who liked intelligent music, you could play the call and there is no denying how good they were. Tornado heaven, all we could do was pray. Into the Woods is one of the most perfect albums I've ever heard. Every track on that record is flawless. The whole concept is flawless. Let the Day Begin is another great record. Reconciled is the one that has I still believe on it and everywhere I go and um, it's very 80s like it's their it's their swinging for the fences going for the big hits kind of record you hear the big gate sound on the mm -hmm. snare boo, gah, yeah gah, gah, you know crazy drum sounds but the songs are just perfect first couple records you know real college rock FM yeah that's some people's know. favorite call song I think oh, yeah. the, what's it called the, the walls came the down. walls came down yeah they blew their horn. Now here's some uh, call trivia I like to throw out there that Michael Bean and Jim Kerr from Simple Minds sang on In Your Eyes by yeah. Peter Gabriel. Which of course again from 80s History is, is momentous. John Cusack, you know, plays right, it, right. on the, uh, the jam box outside the Ioni Sky's uh, yeah. Yeah, house. But And the other thing is his son would go on to yeah. be in... Black the, Rebel Motorcycle Club. And so the first time I heard Black Rebel was when... Um, so Dan Russell, uh, who's a good friend of mine, Dan had managed Mark Hurd. Dan also managed Vigilantes of Love for a while and put out some of their records. But Dan was very involved with The Call. Uh, later on and he managed the call and he kind of helped in the in the 90s to kind of revive what they were doing a little bit so I got to meet Michael Bean he played at True Tunes actually one night when it was a blizzard outside and there was almost nobody in the club and here's the call my mm -hmm. favorite band I mean there's just in a lot of ways U2 is my favorite overall band maybe in a lot of ways but 
the call did some stuff that you two never quite pulled off in my mind and I know that Bono looked up to the call quite a bit. And he sang on their Red Moon record. Yep, yep. What happened to you? Michael Bean was able to do some deeply theological things in ways that nobody would find off-putting and that's an accomplishment and so when uh dan russell called me and said hey there's uh this new band i'm working with called black rebel motorcycle club and i was like that sounds really familiar i've seen that somewhere and it was that's the name of the gang uh, rebel without a cause like the biker gang is called the black rebel motorcycle club and uh they were opening for a group called spiritualized and at a club in chicago and he said it he said, Michael Bean will be there doing front of house for the band. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? How good is this band if Bean is their sound guy? Like, that's insane. And he goes, well, it's it's his son. Is But they're not really playing that up yet. They're so, you know. so I went and saw the, the band, and I saw Michael. And and you can hear it's very different than the call. <laughs> It was sad and beautiful the way Black Rebel, or at least um, his singer, Robert, kind of took the mantle and did a, a tribute record with the rest of the members of the call. Uh, I really wish I could have. After Michael Bean died? Yeah, after he died. Last time I saw Michael was at South by Southwest mm -hmm. several years ago when he was there doing sound for right. Black Rebel, and it's like... There used to be this big Christian music convention in Nashville called GMA Week, where all of the labels came and all the magazines came and everybody came to had anything to do with it. And I got pulled into it, and I enjoyed aspects of it. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of just nonsense. And it was the most, it's kind of like the most awkward family reunion you'd ever have mm -hmm. to go to. And one time when uh, Dan had worked out to do a compilation of The Call to put out to Christian stores, they got invited to play at one of the showcases. And I was like, I can't believe The Call is going to be playing GMA Week. Like, mm -hmm. that is just absurd to me. Like, this is so beneath them. They're so great. They're so epic. They were walking in, and I was walking with them, and, and they played this big luncheon thing at this huge convention center, and it had no vibe at all. And they were still good, but nobody there got it. Nobody cared. And it's pearls before swine all day long. <laughs> and as we're walking out, I said, so, I said, Michael, I, I really, you know, why are you here? I know why I'm here. I have to be here. <laughs> but, like, he goes, I don't know. He goes, we thought it would be worth it. I said, so, what do you think of this whole Christian music thing? And he's like, well, let me put it this way. If bull were bullets there'd be bodies stacked to the ceiling <laughs> yeah that's great that's all for now if you want to reach out to mr thompson you can check out his blog johnjthompson.com Also, you may want to check out our other 1980s podcast series, A Fluorescent Decade on a Hill. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy 
And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner Back with the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Everywhere I go, go.